Hello, good evening and um, welcome. Um, my name is um, Alan Manning. I'm the current uh, head of the economics uh, department. And we're very pleased uh, today to be um, hosting this lecture by uh, Paul Mason, uh, the award-winning economics editor of BBC Newsnight. Um, he's previously authored um, a book, um, Live Working or Die Farting, How the Working Class Went Global. Um, uh, but today he's going to be here to talk about his latest book, uh, Meltdown, The End of the Age of, of Greed. So I think he's going to talk for about um, 40, 45 minutes or so. Then there'll be a chance for questions. And then at the end of the evening, um, he'll be available to sign copies of his book, which I guess are available for sale somewhere um, uh, at the back. Outside. Outside. OK, well, without more ado, I'd just like you to uh, welcome uh, Paul. Good evening. Hello. When I saw on my schedule lecture at the LSE by Paul Mason, I have to admit I did think of the words clarinet concerto at the Carnegie Hall by Woody Allen. Uh, it could happen. It would go ahead as planned. You could listen to it, uh, but it wouldn't have the same status as what normally happens in that venue, and I think maybe neither will this. I am a working journalist. I am not a professional economist. Um, I have rubbed up against the concreteness of this crisis we are living through, probably, and this is a privilege, uh, in, in a closer than most people get to, standing outside Lehman Brothers on the day it collapsed. Um, being in the middle of demos of Greek communist dockers who are frantically telling you we don't do social explosions, we're family men. Seeing the fiscal stimulus go wrong uh, firsthand in America is just what I do. And, and the, the, the observations I'm going to offer tonight are very much observations. They are points that I think we can discuss. And the advantage of being able to do this, my work is not peer-reviewed like the academics it, work is, it's just that it's, it's history in the first draft. And hopefully it can stimulate the discussion. I'm hoping we'll have time for a, a decent discussion. And I think it's quite a heterogeneous audience here as well, so it, quite be, it might be quite lively. Um, let me just work one thing out, how this works. Uh, the thing I press to get it to go probably is not that. That one. That. That's my email, by the way. If anyone wants to email me, comments, contributions, all welcome. Now, those of you who've read my book or seen my stuff will know that I am critical of the neoliberal doctrines that brought us to this situation that I'm dissatisfied with the system produced by the free market reforms after 1989, not simply for the inequalities of wealth they've bred, but for the huge inequalities of power they've relied on and for the denouement we have come to, uh, which is the global financial crisis. But I'm also convinced that those who take the view that there could be something better have to do more thinking. Uh, Keynes wrote a review of a book by Trotsky in the, in the 1920s, in 1926, and he said something I think that has general application to this moment of this crisis. 
Quote, we lack more than usual a coherent scheme of progress, a tangible ideal. All the political parties alike have their origins in past ideas and not in new ideas. The next move, said Keynes, is with the head, admonishing Trotsky, and the fists must wait. Now, I think what he meant there, Keynes at the time was in the middle of, of the development of the yellow book, Social Liberalism the alternative to Asquithian liberalism. Uh, but I think he, 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 he clearly understood that he hadn't finished his work, and as we now know, he hadn't really started it uh, on the major macroeconomic contribution to both understanding and to policy. And I think he wasn't just talking there to the left. He was talking in general to those who wanted to address the forthcoming crisis um, I think the words the fists must wait were a bit inopportune being written three months before uh, the British general strike but I think the point is there uh, we have to have some idea of what it is that we're going to replace what failed with so we've lived I think through a disrupted age the scale of the disruption wasn't obvious from the everyday experience but then the global financial crisis hit. We experienced it, in fact, as a change in the rapidity of communications, uh, the availability of cheap goods, and the availability of credit to buy them with. But the changes are much bigger. The problem for those who want to put it all right is to situate the crisis within the larger cycle it's part of and within the structural change it's part of. And the first part of what I'm going to try and talk about is my impressions of what that is. I'll talk basically about three things, where the crisis came from, what we can expect in what I call the third phase of it, and how it's shaping the future structure of capitalism and its implications for policy. These are big things, but I have the fortune to rub shoulders with people who are addressing them, so it's, I want to share some of it with you. What caused the global financial crisis? Well, you'll be aware of the usual list of things. Let's just, let's just re visit them because I can see in the audience already there are, must be people in this audience who may not even been at university when it started who may even yet not be at university and therefore whilst one has lived it uh, throughout, I mean I am uh, the weatherman in the hurricane for three years it's worth just re recapping an uncontrolled expansion of credit during which the major actors understanding of the risks involved in lending became and I would argue were encouraged by governments to become detached from reality plus an oversupply of savings generated in the export skewed countries of the world above all China Japan Germany in general the exporting surplus countries this and we can go into the debate between the Savings, uh, over saving versus under, uh, under oh, sorry, over saving versus over borrowing theories in a bit. But what it does, one way or the other, it leads to asset price inflation in technology stocks, housing, commodities, and finally, fin complex financial assets themselves. It leads to a new market in securitized debt obligations and on the back of that in credit derivatives. It leads to the rapid expansion of off-balance sheet financial entities which become known only after they have collapsed as the shadow banking system. It leads to, or rather is facilitated by, a massive global failure of bank regulation 
opening the door for something I think that in the first edition of my book I didn't give enough uh, recognition to, uh, but I do now, uh, large-scale malfeasance. We can't discount that as one of the causes of crisis. Because we didn't know about it on the 15th of September 2008, we know now about Repo 105 at Lehman. We know now about Madoff, etc. Now, while all these things that I've just listed off are familiar, I think the people who say, well, we've seen them all before, are wrong. Or, it's, as Rupert Murdoch said in his recent London speech, it's just the business cycle we've gone through. This is why I think not. That's US house prices. Um, red line inflation adjusted, blue line nominal. Take your pick. Since 1970. Uh, either, it's, either it's me or my, and my glasses are wrong or that is something completely deviant. And what should probably worry you is not so much the deviation from the trend line in either graph but why, what happens if we ever get the concomitant dip below which we haven't had yet. The other thing is the jagged edge at the end. Well, that's a, a nice picture for anybody who's ever asked to show this of what happens when the state intervenes in society because it disrupts the pattern. We'll go on to talk about this. Collateralized debt obligations we know about. In the late 1990s they were invented effectively. Uh, so new were they that articles were written in the financial press about the single issue of a single one of these things. I think it was about a $500 million contract known as Bistro. Gillian Tett writes very excellently about it in her book. Um, they grow uh, in a very short space of time to a market of $3.2 trillion. That's the, that's, that graph starts in 1996 and it hits its peak global mortgage-backed securities annual gross issuance in 2003, when it's two, so you can see it's 400, it's 400 billion, and it grows to 3.2 trillion. That's that's a bit of a disruption, I would argue, but at least it's only 3.2 trillion. That's the 3.2 trillion. If you, all that blue stuff there is, if you added it all up into one big bar, that's the toxic debt in the system, or all or part of it. This is global. CDS, credit default swap, amounts outstanding. Now, of course, amounts outstanding are, are not the same as the true value of the transaction. It's the maximum measurement of this. But it was good enough for the US regulator when he pleaded on the morrow of Lehman, please, please, Congress, um, please regulate the $68 trillion market in over-the-counter credit default swaps. This graph doesn't show 68, it just peaks at 60, but I think it's accurate enough. And again, I think you can see the CDS was only invented in 2000 properly in a way that was commercializable. You could put money into it. And, and within the decade, $60 trillion worth of value is represented in this form of transaction. There's more. Let me come back to this. Now, there's a massive takeoff of the global imbalances. We've become used to talking about them. I hope at an LSE audience, I don't have to spell out what they are. But in the early period of globalization, it was common to find them referred to as a kind of yin-yang automatic pictogram of balance. 
within the world economy. China exports, America imports, China lends, America borrows, Chinese consumers save, American consumers borrow, everything's fine. Um, let me show you another bit of the huge disruption we've lived through. That in capital flows, I think which is an under-reported part of the imbalances story. In 1980, Feldstein and Horioka observed that since the dawn of industrial capitalism, there's been a high correlation between saving and investment within countries. And if you look at this graph, which I'm afraid is a bit spindly, can I depart from here? It is a bit spindly. Uh, the red line is what you're looking at, if you can see it. And the right-hand scale is what you're looking at. So what this is, is the famous Feldstein-Horioka paradox that throughout the history of global capitalism, so you are Feldstein-Horioka or John Major or Alan Greenspan, I'm sorry, I hope you can still hear me, and you draw a line from the era of Jay Gould and Carnegie down to the era of John Major, and you say, what's the trend line for capitalism? Well, apart from the 20s and the gold standard, on and off, the trend line has been that basically down here is where mature capitalism sits. Weirdly, there is nearly, that's one-on-one, there's nearly a one-on-one -on -one relationship between national pools of saving and national pools of investment capital. We, given it's supposed to be an international market, say Feldstein and Horioka, but it's probably all explained by the frictions and regulations that get in the way of that ratio being much lower. But look what happens. That, this graph, by the way, is drawn up from a paper by Andy Haldane at the Bank of England. Um, and he, it's his calculation of the global uh, outcome, global outcome, is that 10 years ago it flips back and ends up nearly at zero. Massive switch of the way of the flows of capital, you know, bigger than, bigger than the way the Yellow River has switched its flow over, the year, over, over a thousand years. I mean, that is a big switch. Um, now, if you contemplate that graph, the implications, you know, as I say, are awesome, uh, and it, it, it's telling us something about the scale of disruption we've lived through. It's, ask, it's prompting, I think, a question, the sustainability of that. Is that have we have um, the, uh, the past 100 and, what is it, 120 years been merely a prologue for the takeoff of an entirely new relationship between global and national capital? Or, have, or is this a blip? I don't know. Um, there's another underemphasized factor, uh, which is what Richard Freeman has called the great doubling. So I'm talking here about the, 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 the things that led to this, the great doubling, the emergence of the workforce in China and the former Soviet bloc, doubling the workforce of the world, the employed workforce of the world, available to capital uh, from 1.5 billion to 3 billion. Now, the impact on wages is famously depressive of this, so workers lose their bargaining power, but not uniformly so. I'm currently working on a programme about this for the BBC, and my bosses are constantly asking me to prove this assertion, that the great doubling has in some way um, weakened the bargaining power of labour. So here goes. Uh, the black line in the middle is the 50th decile of US male hourly wages. Female wages are not 
so depressed as this, but you will see that from the era of 1973, with a bit of an up and a bit of a down, by 2005, the 50th percentile of male wages is exactly where it was. That's what they call wage stagnation. Actually, good old Bill Clinton brought it up a bit, if you see, if you look at during the sort of late 90s, but there you go. This is Japan. This is Jap Japanese uh, wages calculated against deflation. So an entirely different macroeconomic climate, obviously a smaller, a, 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 a smaller time scale. Uh, in the early 90s, just after the collapse of the bubble, they, they, uh, real wages increased quite a lot, about, about uh, 12 percentage points. But then in the era of financialized globalization, they have declined even in a, in a, even in a deflationary period. This is Germany. Thick black line, West Germany. Thinner, sort of greyish line, East Germany. And then it goes into working per working hour rather than per employee. But the general drift, I think, is the same. That end bit um, generally turns down a bit. That's, that's all. So look, that's QED from my point of view. And then Mervyn King uh, stands up last week and, and says that in Britain, where real wages and incomes did rise under the Blair era, he helpfully points out that under the Gordon Brown era, they have stagnated for six years. All right, going back on this. One, I'm nearly at the end of the sort of graph bit of this, but so, uh, so bear with me. I think... Uh, I've there's enough here to show that we've lived through a period of disruption. That the, the, the periodization is to me important here. We, the disruption, of course, begins with 1989, with the end of the plan, the start of marketization, the rise of a globalized market, not just in goods, but globalized multi-step production systems. But so many of the graphs, these are just a few ones that I've pointed out, pulled out, in fact, from, from the literature, show a kind of L-shaped knee-jerk turn round about the turn of, just before the turn of the millennium. It's all, in other words, happened since Ross divorced Rachel. <laughs> and it, of course, there's no causation suggested here, but that's how recent the disruptive things I am talking about are. The takeoff of the imbalances, the takeoff, the collapse of Felstein Horioka, the the true takeoff of structured finance. That's that's the time frame. Um, it suggests to me that it's a time limited event, and that we ought to be asking ourselves what comes after it. Um, but not necessarily. It might be there are implications if it's not time limited. This is the last of the graphs I'll show you before I just start rabbiting on. Um, and this is what happened to leverage ratios in UK banks uh, during the, this Ross and Rachel era. Light blue, 1997 to 2000. If you can't see it, there's a very, very faint curve that they're following, which is a tier one capital ratio consistent curve. All that this means is really the light blue bit, banks were clustered around um, sort of 20 to 30% leverage ratios. Uh, and then um, they go up a bit, quite a bit, in the 2001 to 4 period. And then they race ahead uh, again 
I don't know what the Bank of England, because this is a Bank of England graph, I don't know what they're trying to tell us, but basically the, the dark blue bit where it goes out of control races up to a high leverage. You know, two banks here are up this 50 to 60 to 70 we don't know which ones they are, but I bet we can guess. Uh, ratio, that's that too. That dark blue cluster is the golden brown era. Okay? So, we've tended to see this as the financial crisis. The, the last whiplash of disruptive effects. The product of bad management. Negligent regulation, the greed of the financial consumer, because what's driving, I can tell you, whoever they are, what's driving that leverage ratio is not playing around on derivatives markets for no reason. It's the demand of the financial consumer for, 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 for products that require leverage like this. So, okay, we can use all these examples, which effectively are bad person, you know, sort of bad actor theories, but looked at historically, I think something like this, an event like this, a sudden rush, lemming-like rush up to the edge of the cliff, is, has to be the outcome of bigger structural t changes such as I've listed. The rise of finance within globalization, the fall of labor's bargaining power necessitating a greater emphasis on, in the case of the Anglo-Saxon model, credit, in the case of other models, German being one example, a changed relationship within, for example, the Eurozone. Uh, the RMF school of economists based at SOAS makes a very persuasive point about Germany's success being based on hammering down labour costs as peripheral Europe's labour costs rise. The capture of regulation and indeed quite a bit of politics by those who run the finance system, and a policy-driven push of the mass of people into reliance on financial returns for their long-term income, as opposed to either state or some of the previous quasi-state forms of provision. Just to give a concrete example, you know, if you are now looking at either yourself or your parent having to sell their home in order to provide long-term care, then of course it's not just because the finance system has collapsed or that the state has withdrawn from long-term care. There is a huge demographic thing that people live longer, but the fact remains that many people, anecdotally, and it's also there in statistics, have now to rely on a financial asset accumulated during their lifetime to provide their long-term sickness and, uh, and personal care in retirement. That is new. It's, it's not new compared to the 30s, but it's new compared to the era that we lived through. Right, so this, this triggers a crisis. What kind of crisis and why? Right, apologies if you heard me speak before and heard this before. But I, I, every time I do it, I think it, it bears some relationship to the truth. In the movie, Alien... The little alien is sitting on John Hurt's face, if you remember, breathing on his behalf. He's alive, it's keeping him alive because it's a parasite. The guy who's the captain, who also happens to be a surgeon, gets a laser surgeon's gun and cuts the, the finger off the alien. 
The alien leaps off John Hurt, runs away. We see it much later in a, in, a, in a more scary form. But the alien's blood is acid. And it hits the floor of the operating theatre and it burns through. So the cast run down and they wait for it to drop through the ceiling. And sure enough, it drops through and hits the next floor. The thought suddenly occurs to them, if this carries on, it will burn through, right through to the hull of the spaceship. And then that's the end of the film. After several floors, it stops. Now, to me, this is a useful metaphor for what has happened since the crisis. It's obvious who the alien is. I think it's pretty obvious what the acid blood is. It's the toxic debt. And the first floor that it burns through is the real economy. Do you remember politicians saying, we've got a banking crisis, but it's all right because fundamentally the real economy is sound, it's never been better, it's booming. What happens, this is the famous Barry Eichengreen and O'Rourke uh, set of graphs that they produced to map the crisis against uh, June 29. So month one on the blue line is June 1929, just before the Wall Street crash, and April 2008 on the red line. So, so it's tracking the crisis. That's global production. Worrying, worrying for the first 12 months because it's falling much faster than it fell after 1929. We'll come back to each of these. That's the equities. Global stock markets halved in value within a year. Halved. It, this is the, the very, the, there's lots of, you know, if you take this, I'm talking, of course, about the Burkina Faso stock market as well as, as, well as London. You know, but global stock markets halved. Again, much faster than the post-29 post crash. This is trade following the line in this case. It's not, as, not faster. But more worrying, I think, because we, have, we live in a globalised, trade-based uh, system uh, with freely convertible currencies. Right. Now, Fortunately, I mean, when we were reporting on this, obviously, one way of getting the attention of one's bosses in journalism was to show them these graphs. They were quite shocked by them. Because people, obviously, you know, they, gen they tend to listen to the noise that's around them. That it's not all oh, the Daily Telegraph's telling me it's all going to be all right. Uh, one had to sort of get these out. And Iken Green and O'Rourke, I think, did us all a favour with these. But they now show something much more interesting. Um, you're seeing in these graphs the aversion of a disaster by the intervention of the state. The state, you know, indubitably from these three graphs cycling through them is the floor that holds. Actually, these graphs only go up to um, end of last year, middle of last year. I think if we did them again now, they'd be even more positive on the red line. Uh, every one of them. Uh, this is what the state can do. Through fiscal stimulus, through monetary stimulus, through quarantining bad loans by taking them onto the balance sheet of the national government, albeit through various vehicles which technically hide the level of exposure, through knee-jerk interventions that negate market forces, universal de deposit guarantees suddenly available to all, unlimited, uh, lending targets for banks, that's a new thing, uh, imposed by government. Free market capitalism got rescued by the state. That very state that was told to butt out of the market for 20 years. That very state uh, that banks had designed their operations to operate 
outside of the regulation. Uh, now they voluntarily redesigned them overnight in a single week to qualify both for being regulated and being rescued. This was the flaw that held. Now it's a topic that's routinely avoided in a place like Davos because there's a theory there that, which still rules that the state is dysfunctional to the market, that it ought to butt out, that the regulator can never know more than the two participants of the deal, that enterprise and the state don't mix, that individual greed, not the collective attempts to oppose rationality on the economy, is the only driver of progress. Problem, not all states or state formations were strong enough to bear the stress they volunteered to take on board. And though, while these graphs, I cycle through them again, on a global scale are pretty decent, they are, they should, we should be worried about individual instances. Um, and what I call fa phase three of the crisis is what happens when individual parts of the barrier begin to fail. And I think we can list four of them that we have to be worried about. The first is the Eurozone, Ireland, Greece, teetered on the verge of bankruptcy, They're, the currency as a whole taken twice to the brink of breakup and collapse, and now the fiction at the heart of the Maastricht Treaty exposed. Monetary union without fiscal union didn't work in its first big test, and it's now being hopefully, one has to say hopefully, because one can see what's coming down the track towards Spain and Portugal, hopefully a mechanism which prevents uh, further runs on these, on, these, on these sovereign debt, uh, on, on the sovereign debt of these countries, but the price is Northern Europe bails out Southern Europe and takes control of the fiscal policy of the entire Eurozone. So that's a big change, and it's held up to now, but it nearly didn't. I think the second thing is British social democracy. The model of tax revenues from the golden goose placed on a conveyor belt called the state down to communities that never particularly get better because there's no high value wages dragging them out of that and the tax revenues are a palliative. That as a model that seemed to work for quite some time didn't work. Uh, one very influential Labour insider said to me only today I think that's why it's the, it's the failure of real wages and of real incomes to rise, finally, that, that finished us off. Above all the other issues of competency and deficit, that was their view. But whatever, I think there's a widespread recognition, let me say, let me not hyperbolize, there's, there's quite a wide recognition in the top echelons of Labour now that that model can't come back, that they've got to think of something new. The third thing, I think, is bipartisan politics in the United States of America. The, the, the bipartisanship such as it had survived the election of President Obama could not survive the intervention of the state into the economy. It seems to many people unconstitutional and to some even irreligious. I, I have sat in a 90 minute lecture by uh, Glenn Beck and I hope this one that I am do giving is, less, is more coherent but, but they have a point. Uh, they feel it is not it, that, that it's something fundamental's been broken. Now, on top of that, there's, there's, there's the moot point, the, the jury out issue of whether the fiscal stimulus works. Because having seen it at first hand, it's, I just don't think America is a fiscal stimulus country. It doesn't know how it doesn't have the organisms to deliver the stimulus, um, and it's and at a granular level it causes 
the recrudescence of all kinds of political divisions that we thought we had actually put aside. Uh, just type in Paul Mason and then slash Gary Indiana and look at my piece on Newsnight. There's a, just a whole micro-study of what's happening there that shows that. I think I only had a th three examples, but I'm pretty, pretty confident enough to, to add North Africa to it. I think North Africa, albeit, yes, it's, it's, a, com it's a product of demography, young populations can't be absorbed into the workforce. Why? Because the current model not only doesn't work, but it's begun to fail under the twin stresses of financial stress in the globe and commodity price inflation. So uh, provisionally one could, one could, one could add, add those. So there's a lot to worry about in phase three of the crisis. Now, what's the response been? Take the example of America. Fiscal stimulus of 787 billion, as I say, difficult to deliver down at granular level. Can't spend the money. Can't, having spent it, easy way to spend, easiest way to spend it is, n is in a way that doesn't create any jobs. You know, miles of tarmac laid by people who are already employed. Uh, that's local politics in America is that at the moment in the Midwest. Um, so what does it do? 1.75 trillion of quantitative easing, however broken up into, into, as it were, clever and big stick quantitative easing, still 1.7 trillion, not enough. So they need more, QE2. And many have argued that this latter, this second round of monetary intervention amounts to an attempt to tank the dollar and force America's trading partners to pay for the crisis. Above all, the BRICS, through seeing their currencies rise and or domestic inflation rise. What's the response? Well, Brazil's finance minister, Guido Mantegna, uh, this is the only other graph I've got. That's the Brazilian real against the dollar, uh, black line. I'm sorry, blue line. That's up from 225. Oh, no, it's not. It's right-hand scale. It's, it's, it's down from 2.4 to 1.5. It's a big uh, appreciation of the currency. Mantegna says QE2 is a currency war by America against the emerging world. He imposes a tax on foreign purchases of bonds designed, and they do achieve this, to suppress the flow of capital to Brazil. So capital controls, something we thought we'd got rid of. 40 billion intervention into the spot market for the, for the real inside Brazil. Uh, that's another thing they've done. And then this month, they banned short selling of the dollar against the real in Brazil. So you've got short selling ban into the forex market, not into the stock market where we've seen it before. Short selling ban into foreign exchange. And says Mr. Mantegna, quotes, because of course we all know that one person's currency manipulation, which is in some countries deemed illegal by the government, above all America, is another person's opportunity for retaliative trade uh, measures, says Mr. Mantegna, this is a currency war that is turning into a trade war. And he's going to raise it at the WTO. Meanwhile, the Americans are going to raise it at the IMF. We can see where it's all going. So my worry is, as fiscal stimulus gives way to currency manipulation, let's call it that, as G20 summit agreements give way to summits that end with no real communique, you do get the, the danger of trade war. Or as one bond market participant put it to me, all risk is now political risk. 
And of course, it's not just political risk in the, in the arena of relationships between states. What's happening is that the, the, where the state can't take the strain, or to use my analogy, where it can't absorb the acidic toxicity, it, it filters through to something that's actually quite, diff, quite, quite fragile. And that is the relationships between states and the relationships between classes. And at a domestic level, you know, some states experience the 2000s as a roller coaster. Roller coaster. Not only a finance-driven boom, but as we now know, a scam-tolerant boom. Which states? Greece, scam at the level of reporting a country's finances. The minister himself said to me on television, you can look it up, we are endemically corrupt. That's the finance minister of Greece. Okay? We go to, is it Kolonaki, the rich area of Athens, and we find doctors reporting taxable incomes of 30,000 euros a year, and we find a 30,000 euro car outside the surgery. We ask them, how can this be? But not just Greece, we've got Ireland, where a kind of a political gerontocracy has, sits atop a quite family-based political system, uh, which was quite friendly to a bunch of people who now mainly live in exile. These are the bankers uh, and property developers. Uh, and you'd have to say, on the basis of some of the things that have been going on here, Britain. You know, Britain was the place that Lehman came to to get its Repo 105 transaction vehicle signed off. Much of what AIG did in, the ter in, in terms of the, the business it did, which was value destroying, was done in its London offices. Madoff had a whole operation going on in London. We ain't that clean. But the problem here, here is these states are now having to impose, and others, impose austerity on an unprecedented scale. I make no comments about having to. I think you know, give or take the odd, the odd detail, generally they have to. But the rising generation will, as a result, be poorer. And it's quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, my grandmother lived throughout the, the granddad lived in the 30s, and they said, you know, we were poor. But, you know, it's kind of for a living memory being that you, every generation gets richer. And I think some of the unpredictability of what we're now seeing in the relationship between classes and also generations right, arises from this very new, for those of us mainly still alive, you know, mainly most of us haven't really experienced this, this new experience and expectation that, that, the, that we haven't really even seen it yet, but things are going to get worse. You know, it explains the crazy nature of some of the revolts as well. Because revolts we are used to, those of us who've kind of lived through and covered Britain in the 80s remember sort of what revolts were like, and they were quite predictable. But I suppose, you know, I, the, the words of the Kanak chief to the sort of in New Caledonia, you know, the white man promised us the heaven and the earth but delivered only bitterness, is something that leads people to, as in their case, suicidal revolts, revolts that can never win and that simply express rage. I, having covered some of what's going on in the world, from the student protests to Greece, etc., to, to the Tea Party movement in America, feel this to be a salient feature of what's going on. It's what happens if, if, if the whole world collapses around you. And, see, where does I think it's going? That 
It's Ben Bernanke who told us that the people who devalue their currency and offload the costs of crisis onto their neighbours first escape the crisis first, because that's the lesson of Bernanke's book on the 30s. Cutting to the chase, I'll try and finish and, and, and talk about some of the things. Where, that, uh, what, what's the alternative? It looks to me like that we've got three givens to the world, globalization, free markets, financialization. I think each of these things are going to have to be rethought. And they're going to have to be rethought. It's best to do them at an intellectual level and try and do it, I think, at a sort of philosophical level because the nearer to the grubby reality of banking reform you get, the harder it is to sort of do sort of root and branch thinking. But, you know, it looks to me that globalization probably is only going to be sustainable if we can design a new framework of institutions. Uh, it's touch and go. They'd have to be more ambitious than the WTO. They would have to involve the voluntary adoption of limits to the imbalances of all kinds, above all current account imbalances. So the 4% proposal that Geithner took to the G20, or I should say briefed and then withdrew, um, would be the minimum because it wouldn't have affected anything. Uh, I don't think anybody has a 4% of GDP or they touch it uh, slightly. But that's the direction of travel. You're going to have to ask yourself about ultra-free market capitalism. Increasingly, um, large parts of it are getting sort of undermined or, or, or sort of partly destroyed by some of the regulatory actions that are being taken, the nationalizations, the, much of the banking system still on life support, the car industry in America. You see these things. And when it comes to banks, I think we, we, we are going to have to look at, I think it's worth giving at least a look to some of the intellectually sort of radical proposals, not least because if the boss of the Bank of England stands up one day in Buttonwood, New York and says let's think about whether it's a good idea to abolish fractional reserve banking I think you can take it that that's, that's permission for the rest of us to talk about that um, because Bank of England has been at the forefront in pointing out that what banks have done in the last hundred years is ratchet up the scale of social insurance and guarantee for them at the same time as ratcheting up their return on, on investment um, the uh, socialization of the losses and the privatization of the gains is something that is real and I think recognized by even as I say you know the bank's head of financial stability. Now Haldane who I'm talking about proposes the following solution that if you're going to socialize the losses you need a more equitable system of doing it. You need higher capital ratios, higher leverage caps, actual leverage caps, we don't have any, state intervention to break up banking monopolies. And as I say, Mervyn King goes one further, starts thinking aloud about, for example, the Kotlikoff proposal, which turns banks into pure intermediaries, so that, to put it in layman's language, anybody investing can lose their money. Uh, lending or investing or depositing can lose their money. Uh, and therefore the, the, the bank becomes a risk manager. Now, my concern about these things, interesting though they are, is that the danger is, is that they kill the dynamism. Because the question is, we've got, if the dynamism that we have in the system arises from global pools of capital, heavy access of, to financial products and assets by the mass of people within a relatively free 
global market in trade and services and increasingly labour, then what does it do if you suddenly say there's a much higher price, there's a punitive price on banking to be levied? I think that it... It's, 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 it certainly should give you pause before you go rushing off to think about doing them. I think, why are they thinking about doing it? Actually, all these proposals, Kotlikov, Tobin before him, go back to the reason, reasoning of the free market economists in the late 1940s, Maurice Alaï and Henry Simons. They said if you create fractional reserve banking on the basis of the Bretton Woods system, it'll sporadically fail and it'll get nationalised. And they didn't want that. They, could, they said, if we could isolate, this is Henry Simons, if we could isolate the lending and investment business from a deposit banking, we might eliminate a real danger of government control or socialization in an area where it's most important to avoid it. In my book, I have argued that we should at least give some consideration to another alternative, which is not socializing the losses, privatizing the gains, which is more or less seen as unacceptable, the right, the free market right, sees the, the answer as being you privatise the losses, you let banks go bust. What they think Chapter 11 is, I don't know, but it, going bust, it ain't. But there you go, that's an intellectually coherent thing. The third intellectually co coherent thing is to do what Hyman Minsky advocated in the late 1990s, which is to socialise the losses and, and to socialise the gains as well. That is, to, to do what Simons and Allais feared in the 40s, which is to socialise the banking system. Not in order to enact any kind of socialist project, but simply to free the private sector of free market capitalism from the burden of sporadic interventions to save banking. You socialise, mutualise, you create a mixed economy of banking, which is effectively a utility, and you say to the rest of ah, the system, you know, let your animal spirits loose. That was what Minsky thought. You, Minsky also believed, by the way, for anybody who thinks he's a raving lefty, in abolishing welfare at the same time. Uh, but uh, to which I, you know, one can only say, interesting. But look, <laughs> but we are in this world. I think we ought to be as well of the the intellectually coherent and radical alternative, simply because so much of the discussion is is about vested interest and and micro movement this way or that. Where are we going? I think to make any of this work, you'd also have to revisit the international framework. You know, the Chinese are arguing for, for a, a new reserve, alternative reserve currency to, to the dollar. Um, it's implicit in any idea of stabilizing globalization that there have to be alongside limits on the imbalances, mutual, multilaterally agreed, some new move towards some multilaterally agreed reserve currency. It's weird actually how the left and the right have their eyes on the same prize. You know, the, the right who are obsessed with you know, fiat money and gold standard, the left, you know, the Minsky and left who are, who are more interested in, in, in this kind of multilateral imposition. Quite interesting that they're both interested. But look, Keynes was thinking about this same lines by the early 30s. On the eve of the London conference he said, look, our plan has to be spectacular. We have to change what he called the grey complexion of men's minds. It must apply to all countries and simultaneously. It's that that I think we've been missing in this crisis. I don't have it, uh, I hasten to add, but I think it's something that is quite obviously missing from the dialogue. And one would want the dialogue to be richer about this. Because 
if we don't manage to save some form of globalization, uh, if we don't manage to save some form of a world in which financial access is wide and therefore access to credit and therefore liquidity, dynamism, complexity, you can kiss goodbye to Starbucks and eBay and Facebook and Google. I just think you can. I don't say it'll be back to Minitel or in, as in France or sterilised milk as in Britain. For those of you who know what sterilised milk is, I know that I'm speaking to a multi-generational multi, uh, audience here. I don't say that the future is that, but there is a danger that the dynamism is squeezed out of the system by the solution. Do we see this highly volatile system created in the years after the Ross and Rachel divorce on Friends as temporary and time-limited or immutable. Because unless we address all this, you know, thankfully at the moment it is only the security planners who have to ask these questions. It is not yet the economists. But the British security and defence establishment did ask itself only last year the most pertinent question that arises if this system collapses or breaks up into fragmented blocks as it did in the 30s. And it's a simple question. How many aircraft carriers do you need if globalization falls apart? That's what they're asking. It's what the Chinese are asking. It's what the Americans kind of already have a contingency plan for. Six, I think it is. But that's the problem. So, look, Outline of the scale of the epochal scale of the problem, a little bit of a run through of the alien thing, and, and a, not, I don't mean this to, to be apocalyptic, but I do mean it to be we'd better be serious about what, what our solutions are for this and raise them to the level of global solutions because the, you, so few states people, men and women, are yet prepared to talk about what the global solution to this is. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Paul, for that uh, very interesting and stimulating talk. Um, so I'll just open it to the floor for questions now. I think I'll take questions in sort of groups of uh, three, and then Paul can so give him a bit of time to think about the answer to the first one, um, and um, then we'll take it from there. So who would like to ask a question? Could we just start one? Isn't it just being realistic um, that we're not going to get a global solution? Um, the Doha round is now 10 years been dragging on. Um, uh, you mentioned the G20 producing absolutely nothing. Um, the government here accepting socialization of gains when it's so dependent on the revenue from the city. And the outlook for our own economy, I think just as a second point, is actually so bad. I mean, all this crisis has done is, under, is reveal the underlying weakness from the early 80s, the devastation of manufacturing industry, the uh, focus on the city. We've got to compete and balance our economy. And even with a devalued exchange rate, with a devalued pound, we're not managing to export. Because what have we to export? We don't make things anymore. We just shove money around on computers in the city. OK. Good question down there. John Strafford. Um, are there any UK politicians 
even thinking in terms of the solution that you put forward? Would the BBC allow you to put forward that solution? And is it even possible that without revolution it could ever happen? Okay. Um, at the back up there. Sorry, have you got to walk all the way back? Sorry, I thought there was a mic right at the top. Sorry about that. Yeah, there. Uh, hi, I'm Nico McDonald, uh, co-author of something called Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation, although it should be the Global Manifesto after Paul's comments. Um, there's an article in the New York Times, Paul, uh, by uh, George Mason, university professor, in the last few days pointing out that the quality of improvement of people's lives in the kind of internet ICT era compared to the early part of the 20th century was quite negligible. And I would put it to you that you've not really addressed the fundamental problem, which is about innovation and dynamism in the kind of productive manufacturing service provision side of the economy, rather than the distribution of finances. And do you have a view about what's happened in that side of the economy? Because it would seem to me that if that side of the economy were dynamic, the financial side would have been less innovative and less creative and carried on more like it has in normal times, inverted commas. So if the conditions around regulation, globalization, and so on you've described had existed in the 50s or 60s, would you have found a similar phenomenon happening in the United States, in you know, Europe post-war? Uh, and if not, then perhaps the problem is actually the lack of productivity in the economy, not uh, the behavior of banks and the lack of regulation. Well, can I go backwards uh, from Nico, hello, uh, and hello to everybody else. Just backwards from that, look, I think obviously because this was a, mainly a talk about sort of phases of the financial crisis, that's something that is very much front of mind for me and a lot of journalists who cover it because of the rebalancing debate that, that has started both with the coalition and Labour policy. Now, my take on it, and it, it's, a t it's a provisional take, would be this. It, it's... The problem of lack of modernization and productivity of UK manufacturing is not a function of the strength of finance. The, the, squeeze, the, the sort of crowding out, squeezing out argument is, is certainly there, but I think that British manufacturing's problems go deeper. Actually, Harold Wilson tried to do many of the things that the coalition, without any dirigist intent or apparatus, says it's going to do. But Harold Wilson failed to do them. Uh, he didn't succeed in the white, in modernizing the British economy in the white heat of the technological revolution. So I think it's going to be quite hard because we have long term, several crises long, as it were, structural problems in UK manufacturing, uh, not least its small size, uh, the repeated failure of dirigism, targeting the wrong things. One argument is that they, you know, they targeted. Um, mechanical engineering in the early 60s and elect electrical engineering when it was the start of actually the ICT revolution. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't target right, otherwise Germany and Japan wouldn't be the powerhouses that they are today. S China in its own way, Singapore, we could go on listing them, people who have made dirigism work. So that's one part of it. I don't draw a direct ratio between, as it were, banking excess and manufacturing uh, uselessness. But there's a third thing that I think UK policymakers are quietly very worried about, and you can look at it from the latest quarter's growth figures, and that is low-value services. Low-value services is the great unsung 
horror story of the UK economy. Labour called it the pedestrian economy. What is it? Kebab shops. Yeah? Or it, it, it's, it's, it's things that don't make any high value. And their services, they're not very productive. I think we ought to be at least as worried about that area because it probably dwarfs in employment terms, both manufacturing and, and finance. Now, just, to, just coming back to you, because I know where you're coming from and, and in your general sort of, you know, City of London thing. I think this, to say the socialised the losses thing has to be rethought doesn't say the City of London disappears, because in all as it were, both Minsky and both, you know, Levy Institute on the one hand and Cato Institute on the other, what they always do is they always leave the animal spirits of the entrepreneur in finance free. Actually, Minsky does that. He just says you don't get, you know, you don't get, um, un you get unlimited liability. And in Greenspan's case, uh, Greenspan su suggests in his 2009 paper that you get criminal charges if you crash your bank. That's good, probably good enough for me. Uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a sanction on the unregulated part. Uh, I don't think there's an, a, any lack of future of the U, UK's financial centre in a reconfigured financial world. What I'm more interested to say is, is, is to pose that question alongside what happens if we do then get a, a new global reserve currency. I can, I'm 50, I can see it happening in my lifetime. Just, maybe. Going to your question, sir, I think I'll give you a very succinct answer. I mean, the BBC doesn't allow me to advocate anything in terms of policy, but the reason I'm allowed to, as it were, raise, raise questions in debate, because I think that the role of a journalist is to play this kind of whispering, the slave who whispers in the ear of power. Uh, you know, you are, you are mortal. Uh, and it surprised me, actually, given how many people in finance worship Hyman Minsky, uh, there are a whole portfolios of investments you can make on the basis of Minskyan uh, insights into uh, economics. Uh, what surprised me that when I was rushed to Amazon to order his entire collected works uh, in, on, you know, in, in the aftermath of, of uh, George Magnus's famous paper in 2000 and March 2008, are we approaching the Minsky moment? To which we now know the answer is yes, because Minsky predicted financial complexity leads to a collapse. Um, what surprised me that nobody read the last chapter of all the books and the last chapter just outlines very clearly not just narrow banking, not just a narrow banking system, but a socialised complex banking system. So it's wrong to say that all Minsky wants is deposits and loans. Um, he tries to, he actually doesn't just write about it in his book, he's writing letters to the FDIC, to Nixon, to Reagan saying do this. So it's all there. I don't say let's do it. I just say, let's read it. Because there's plenty of other panaceas flo floating around. And I mentioned Kotlikov, because I think Kotlikov is an interesting proposal. This is the, you know, mutual, the, the creation of banks into sort of unit trust type of activities that is all too easily thrown around when there are other equally sort of off-the-wall but interesting ways of solving it. Two, and I do think it could be done short of a revolution, actually. You know, I think it's... We, um, there's even a little bit of it, isn't there? There's credit unions. They're tiny in Britain. They're not tiny in other developed countries. Now, what credit unions do are not only provide a different model, an unsecuritized model for finance. What's interesting is that the micro-sociology of them is that they exert a sociological influence 
into workforces. Most credit unions that are successful are based on workforces. So Glasgow City Council has one. The police in Scotland have one. What, it, what they find, there's 30,000 bus drivers in the private sector in one, and what the anecdotal evidence is that they all save. Uh, and they're not just different, they haven't been injected with a different thing as they got up in the morning. They, they're not different to you and me. They want, you know, as it were, this Shylock, they want Facebook and eBay, but they just want them on different terms. To um, your question, um, global solution. Um, well, I think the problem is, you, of course, you can say that we're doomed. Uh, you can say uh, Doha is finished, and probably is. Most participants admit it is. You could say Copenhagen's going nowhere. You could say Basel III is a bit of a joke. I think it, you could probably say that, most people who've observed it. But be aware of what the price is. I think we have to be aware, we have to read the memoirs of perfectly sane liberal intellectuals in 1914 and in 1933. And the price is that the world that you knew suddenly disappears. If we stop pursuing the global, because look, there's a there'll be a debate going on inside the coalition, let alone the Labour Party. All, they all want to rebalance. What happens if Germany starts competitively rebalancing itself? You're suddenly up against what you might think of as protectionism. What's the answer? Well, we know what the answer is from history. A perfectly free market bunch of people who led the Labour Party in 1929 suddenly found a conference going on in Birmingham in 1931, held by the Independent Labour Party. And the key thinkers were Strachey, Nybevan, and Oswald Mosley. And all they were doing, it wasn't radical, they were saying, look, this free market stuff is going out the window. We have to protect the British workforce against imports. It wasn't so much export-oriented politics. But the 1931 Birmingham ILP conference is the genesis, really, of, of demand management in British politics. That happened uh, two years after the crisis. This will happen in British politics. And my view is you don't abandon the global until you've given it every shot you can, because the, we know what national and economic bloc politics and economics can look like. The most successful currency union in the history is not one that we want to emulate. Okay, I think there are some other questions at the, the back up there. In the back there. Yeah. Hi. Um, wanted to go back to something you kind of closed with, which, which was this kind of warning call for cutting off the future Starbucks and the Googles and mm. some of the more innovative companies. And I just. What I'm, what I'm struggling with there is, you know, we, we didn't really have a, a banking crisis between 1945 and 1971, but we also had quite a bit of innovation mm. uh, during that time frame. You know, the venture capital industry came of age then, et cetera. So I just, I'm having a hard time reconciling kind of the doomsday scenario you're painting where a highly regulated financial system also equates with the end of innovation. Okay, there was a question here. There are two aspects of um, your analysis um, that I think are lacking and uh, they bear some relationship to the future. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, two ideas that were raised by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb about financial institutions and these are redundancy and scale. 
Um, he pointed out that, uh, as distinct from financial institutions that failed, nature is full of redundancy. You know, we tend to have, as uh, in our own organisms, two or, two or more of everything. Um, and too big to fail was one of the prime reasons that made the financial institutions so vulnerable. Mm. Um, he talks about the necessity for institutions uh, to incorporate failure within a wider field of uh, many numbers of institutions, only uh, a few of which fail. Okay, there's a question just... Um Hi, yeah, so this uh, links back to the question about innovation uh, and uh, the gentleman's question there. This idea of uh, dynamism, if you put controls uh, on the banks, uh, separate retail from investment, etc., capital controls, that that's going to affect dynamism. Surely that's a red herring that favours the banks. Um, they don't really uh, do a lot of venture investing. Um, uh, it seems to me that they simply threat to, uh, threaten to move abroad, which they could do now anyway if they found competitive advantage abroad. So it kind of links to that, that uh, this whole idea that not necessarily, uh, you know, we won't be less dynamic uh, mm. and it won't impact innovation and let, Starbucks. Let, okay, let, let me try and qualify what I said. What, what, what I was talking about specifically is the whole... Uh, um, menu that Mervyn King in the Buttonwood speech laid out and the, and the kind of stuff that's also implicit in what the various Bank of England people, David Miles, Holday and etc. are talking about. See because they're the central bankers that are doing the most radical thinking and they're doing it in the form of you know, intellectually pure bank reform proposals that, that, that of course we all expect, you know, Vickers, the Vickers Commission isn't going to sit there saying yes, Kotlikov, let's do it. But they're kind of working back from the from the, from the purest proposition to try and work out a way forward. What I'm trying to say about all of them is that they, they all derive from this, from, from this thing that goes right back to the 40s, which is that the idea of a return to narrow banking uh, where deposits and, and, and uh, loans equal are all both in ratio to each other of 100%. Which at the same time creates a, as it were, an, a sort of off the side of the desk um, system uh, that, it, that w through which uh, pure speculation can take place, which is never socially insured at all. That's the you'll find it again and again, and it's not just there in Kotlikov. The more you look at it, it's there. In now, my problem with it is that at that level, I can't see what happens to financial globalization that's that's my that's my concern of course you'll get a re re already in the crisis you had retreat to national pools of capital um, the crisis itself was probably m much more of a national retreat to the home territory of financial capital than we probably realize anecdotally that's what it is um, so my question is not is this a good idea, but can this be sold, Kotlikov or abolish fractional reserve banking or the whole, it goes back to Tobin, as I, as I say, to the late 40s, does any of it add up to something that can sustain financial globalization? I don't think it can. Weirdly, I think that I think there is a better chance, if you want a radical proposal, suppose is what I'm saying, is that the, the, the Minsky version of it doesn't suppress, isn't designed 
to purely suppress fractional reserve banking. I mean, we could go into it in some greater detail. I mean, I don't think there's much of a detailed proposal beyond the ones he set out in the early 90s. But I do think um, that we, that, see, look, the problem, the, the, the fr frustration with Mervyn and with some of the bank people is you can't interview them. You can't. You can throw questions to them in press conferences, but they will not be interviewed on a on a sort of dia dialogue basis. So all the questions one wants to ask, like how does this work? What happens to the international capital flow? What happens to Feldstein Horioka if you do this, Mervyn? Is, are never are never addressed, and therefore what is addressed are a much grubbier set of bank uh, proposals, which probably will happen. Now, yes, I absolutely take your point at the back that during the kind of long boom. Uh, innovation goes alongside uh, heavily regulated banking. Yes, I absolutely take that as, uh, uh, on board. And I'm not saying you won't get human genome development, etc. If you do, you know, if you if you do clamp down heavily on globalized finan financial globalization, I'm just asking the question: What are the mechanisms of what? What are the Entrepreneurial mechanisms and financing mechanisms, not just of the of the innovation, but the but as it were of the petri jar of the innovation, which is this very labile cons global consumer. It's the it's the you know, Facebook innovates every three months. It's a different business six months later because it's in this world. I think that world goes away if you if you definancialize uh, capital. So I'm only asking since we're since as far-sighted a person as Mervyn thinks we might have to do it, or we have, to, we have to, we might have to do it even at a sort of 10% chance, so that he has to mention it in a speech. I then ask, well, where's the finance? Where's the dynamism in the system coming from? Well, you could do it, but remember, you know, the Rand corporate, the, the America of Rand and Ford and GM is an organised capitalism. If we're talking about going back to an organised capitalism, let's do that. Let's discuss what what that might look like in in an era of post the Thatcherite and Reagan revolution. That's all, I, I'm not closing down that one could do that, I just think that's the salient question. I think th that answers kind of that round of questions, I think. Okay. Maybe that um, concludes. <coughs> uh, up there, just in front of you, there, yeah. Hi, uh, thank you for the good lecture. Uh, just very quickly, my question is, why do you think the, the last uh, credit crisis spread across the world rather than deepening in the US where it initially started. Thank you. Uh, questions down there, there's uh, one there. Thank you. Um, two things that also were relevant to the crisis but seem to have been frequently missed out from the analysis. One is the role of short-termism illustrated by the fact that most of us that save for a pension are looking at over a 20-year time scale but most of the people that manage our money are rewarded on a 12-month uh, time scale. Second is, uh, and related to that, is that uh, the regulatory debate doesn't often t talk about the sense of purpose. For example, we hear, uh, we hear that we want uh, uh, lending in uh, productive activity that's going to create jobs, but the banks just talk about lending to, uh, to fuel asset bubbles and there doesn't seem to be much distinction between the two. So my question for Paul would be, how do you get a sense of long-termism and a proper grasp of the sense of what the purpose of a lot of financial activity is for back into the regulatory debate. Okay, there's a question just there. Um, uh, yeah, I just, just to go back to your starting point, um, and I, um, I, what I observe at the moment 
is what's happening in Egypt. And so when you say, as you did towards the end of your um, excellent talk, when you use phrases like protests that are bound to fail and so forth, I mean, that may well be the case, and yet in my lifetime, with the exception of 1989, it seems like this is the time when that's least likely to be said. So I just wonder why you are excluding, almost as a point of principle, the possibility that there may be some kind of emancipatory uh, movements which will um, change the game. Mm. Well, I've probably overstated it, uh, but what I mean, I, I'm thinking a lot of, about about not so much the dynamic of these protests, but about the zeitgeist in them. And, and above all, this, I don't know how many people here have been involved or had contact with the student protests. I've had a lot of contact with it. And the, the, the thing is, it's not that I say it's doomed to fail, but that, that there's quite a, the ideology within it is certainly not one that one, I mean, you know, I've lived through, reported on, observed, minor strike, the printer strike, the steel strike in Sheffield in the 80s. These are, the dynamic's very different. And it's because, it, really, organised labour is so weak and so... And I believe me, I've hit, written a quasi-global history of it. It is weak, organised labour. So you're seeing mass popular movements, and the limits of them come up, are quite easily... Quite, I think they're just quite easily reached. They're reached when, the, when repression gets serious, and when... You know, I mean, I, think, I still think even now, much though one has to sort of lord the bravery and, and idealism of the people on the streets in Egypt, the final dynamic of what happens in Egypt, sadly, without, with, unless organised labour enters and goes on general strike, uh, etc., is going to be de determined between the State Department and the Egyptian military and, and various other actors in, in that region. And I don't say, well, it, that's inevitable, but I just see, I ask, what breaks out of it? And I also ask, what's the, what, see, this is what Keynes asks Trotsky in the, in the, the, the quote I opened with. What is it you're supposed to be replacing this with? What is the new idea that replaces the system you don't like? I think probably the Egyptians, good for them, they have democracy, they have a more modern, you know, freer form of, 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 of liberal capitalism. But to others, for, you know the Tea Party movement. What is it? What is it? What is it that they want? I, I, I think you you make a valid point. There is there is an answer to all of this. They, they they all have a dynamic that leads somewhere. I don't mean to say they are doomed in that respect. I just think many of them are expressions of. It's a it's the one no and many. What is it? One no and many yeses, which is the slogan of, of, of the anti-globalisation movement. It is, it is, well, until we get one yes, or at least some, some approximation to some coherence about what the yes is, these are protests with a different dynamic than the ones that shaped the post-war world. I suppose that's the most coherent thing I can say in answer to you. Now, going to this, why wasn't it... Why did it spread across the world, as it were, shallowly, than, than deepening the USA? Well, I think it did deepen quite deeply in the USA. In this sense, first of all, at the finance level, they did have to temporarily nationalise City and Bank of America. City and Bank of America are, you know, they are bigger than many economies in the world. Um, and to see those institutions, essentially commercial banks, uh, universal commercial banks, n not temporarily nationalised, um, shows how deep it was. I mean, Bear Stearns, Lehman, Merrill, you, you know, you can understand. Nationalising BOA and City, big step. 
so they did that so that's one reason and then the other reason is of course that well the other explanation is that it did but that the financial crisis has torn through property I mean even now house price I don't know what the latest case Schiller is but the general trend line is still down we're still in a deflationary spiral on housing um, and wages I mean albeit a quarter of decent growth good let's cheer up but look at the underlying dynamic between wages and um, and US house prices and it's not a good story and especially not a good story after 787 billion of fiscal stimulus and 1.75 trillion of monetary stimulus it, it's, that is not a good story now hopefully it doesn't go where we all know it can go which is the, to the debt deflation spiral but you can't say it's, it, it hasn't been that deep but the spreading across the world I mean look you know it's 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 it, you, we know no if you look at the scale of bad and toxic and troubled debt in the European banking system you can see that Europe was you know the guilty secret of the neoliberal system it's not you know Europe's the place where all the bad bets were placed uh, not so much America and all and if you then you break it down it's of course you get the islands and you get the Iceland's but whose banks are the ones that have huge political uh, mountains to climb uh, to be able to pass stress tests that are effectively rigged in favour of passing Germany, Spain uh, not the minnows or the obviously crazy economies um, short termism um, well look it's a whole it, it's a whole other it's a whole other um, argument about, just remind me your question about short termism again sorry is that one go Show to talk because we'll hear it. The question, the question is, how do you bring, how do you bring a, a longer-term view back into the uh, reform debate? So well, you get finance doing what it's actually meant to be doing rather than what the finances want it to be see, doing. See, these are value-laden statements you're making, what it's meant to be doing. I mean, you know, there are people in that system who believe it is, uh, you know, that it not, it's not implicitly meant to be doing anything. Uh, you know, it, it's the, the, the world of it mobilizes the savings of the people to finance business is, is the last century and gone. Same people believe that all those disruptions I showed in those charts are the opening of a new era in which you could just have to reconcile yourself to, you know, to, to ratios that have been one on one for 120 years, collapsing to naught. That's, now, it's a big question for society. Do we want to, to try and design a finance system that will allow long-term needs and decisions to be met or not? It's a bigger question than bank reform, actually, because you could quite easily design it with tweaks to the existing system. I don't think the German banking system is a Minskian haven of radical you know, thinking. It's just... You know, it's just Sparkasse, it's just Lenders Banks, it's just, you know, you look at Raiffeisen Bank, you look at... Italy's various uh, regional banks. These are easy. Of course, many of them, a person from Goldman Sachs came up to me at one of my talks and said, they're just as corrupt as us. And I think that's probably true. The Landers banks are you know, just as corruptly run as, as he said it, as Goldman Sachs. Fine. Uh, but they help economic stability. And therefore, a country like Britain that is at a turning point, you've at least got to say, should we consider you know, the Landis Bank model? Should we consider ethical banks? Should we consider 
you know, there's a, the famous Tory thinker, Philip Blonde, has written a whole book about how the economy is supposed to be rebalanced towards mutualised, localised economies. How is this going to happen unless we get the British equivalent of Landers Banks? I can't see it personally. So you've got to then say, where's the Landers Bank, Philip, that goes alongside your, you know, coherent proposal for, as it were, the real world aspect of these things? We've got time for one more question or something. Then we can yeah, and then perhaps you can wrap up... Um Are we not, to a certain extent, all doomed anyway? Well, that's a good way to finish. Um, I mean, th what drives the question is that we're in sort of uncharted territory regarding s s where we're going to go with oil, the Chinese buying up all the raw materials, all that kind of thing. Does, to a certain extent, does rearranging the chairs of capitalism make any difference going forward? Right, well, uh, look, look, let me, let me, um, let me answer that. Let me, just, let me just sum up. I think I do a lot of talks like this, and, and often those questions come up, but I, th I think of them as exogenous shocks to this, to this debate. So the ageing debate, very, very fundamental, because if, even if one can revive the savings system to be doing what it is supposed to do, um, and you suppress some of the socially unnecessary as Adair called socially useless part of the, of the derivative and, and uh, speculative system even if you can do that the, the problem then is the exogenous shock hits you of the demographic bubble yeah, the, the, the baby boom disappears out of the workforce and the Chinese have got the same thing coming to them as well so you're not let off the hook either then the, the, there aren't enough people working to make the whole sort of um, maturity issue that, that stood at the heart of the pension system work, that is that those in work really pay for the pensions of those who live longest. You've got that, that hits you. Um, I think as well, yeah, the, the, the I think that energy scarcity and resource scarcity in general will become the exogenous issue of sustainability that hits us, as it were, far more in the face in this century than climate change. Though um, I believe in climate change, I believe it is humanly caused, but I think that the, the rare earth, oil shocks, tar sands, area of issues are going to hit us. You know, they'll hit us in the next decade in Britain uh, by you know, the very predictions of Ofgem. It's Ofgem, after all, that predicts that the lights will go off in 2017 unless we build all these new nuclear persons. So, yet, yeah, of course the, the exogenous issues are important but I think sometimes uh, we rush to them to start talking about them because the, the endogenous the issue of resolving this problem at the heart of the market is, is so hard to do, seemingly so intractable. And I, I keep coming back to I, I think crude Keynesian economics have been tried and in some senses failed in this crisis. The, certainly fiscal stimulus, you know, as a, you know, lots of people on the left and the liberal wing of, of society, as it were, worship Krugman. I, I personally don't. I don't think that the, the insistence on fiscal uh, above monetary is, a, is, a, is, is necessarily right. I tend to think that a monetary Keynesian response, such as Keynes advised, the outgoing Uber government in 32 to do, which is quantitative easing, was the thing that could have 
decisively put a, 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 a platform under all these graphs for good um, if it had been done in the way that some of the monetarist Keynesians this now had advocated. That is, as a pure pump priming, demand priming thing, rather than a recirculating the money back into the banking system and letting it be held there as a way of solving their liquidity crisis. That is, in, you know, on YouTube, if you type in quantitative easing, there's a guy from some university in America who's simply there with a bucket pouring water and saying, this is what it's supposed to be. It'll pour out into demand. Of course, it hasn't really poured out into demand. And I think that... Keynesianism, therefore, you know, I'm not a crude Keynesian, but on a, this I am. Keynes and Harry Dexter White sat down in the very months where the British front line against Germany was about 22 miles from here, you know, on the, on 50 miles from here, the Dover Straits, when America had no divisions in Europe. They sat down and said, what's the world going to look like when we win? And I think it's that, really. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I, I just, there's a, there's a deficit of one thing. It's a deficit of people who are prepared to ask that question. What is the world going to look like if we can redesign it so that this fundamental conquest, which is a globalized market and a labile, fluid, mercurial, annoying, uh, taking the point of the guy at the back, you know, market as well, and, you know, nothing like as stable or heroic as the great era of the 60s and early you know, 50s and 60s, w what is it going to look like if we save this? That is the issue. Because I don't, I'd equally say, uh, I've said it already, I won't dwell on it, that we do know what it looks like if you, start, if you set out and with the starting point being, what's it going to look like now that we've abandoned the idea? Because that's really easy to do. Do it in any political flavour you want to do it. It's quite easy. We could, we, we could all sit down collectively by the end of the night a few beers and pizzas we could draw up a protectionist program for Britain now or anywhere else in the world if we wanted to but the hard thing is to work out if you could maybe you can't um, you tell me maybe there are people out there politicians out there really thinking about this but it's just a plea from a humble person in the trenches listening at these these, these summits to, to the wash of, of unspecificity, unspecificity that comes at you and of, and, of, and, of, and of lack of vaunting, vaunting ideals, just a plea for a bit of it. Because our pregenitors were capable of it. They were capable at the very least of thinking what it might be like. That's it. Okay, thank you.